Hi there, I'm Ken Krause, and I'm one of the voices of our feisty little Snap Sessions podcast. Together with interviewer, writer, and commentator Doug Nunn and techmeister Marshall Brown, we produce the mix of politics, comedy, and interviews that is Snap Sessions. Maintaining the good ship SS Snap Sessions isn't free. Expenses include our website hosting, Zoom Pro account, transcription services for interviews, and other things that keep our podcast snapping. If you enjoy our quirky show, we'd like to ask you to become one of our Snap supporters. We've even added some membership levels to make it easier for you to join our Snap family through our Patreon link at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. To help us produce our monthly antidote to the media madness, you can join our support team as a baby snapper for just $1 a month. For only $3 a month, you can become a snip snapper. We also have our existing levels of support through Patreon with the mighty mini snapper at $5 a month, the simple snapper at $10 a month, the beefy big snapper at $20 a month, and for $35 a month, you can become an exalted Snappus Maximus. And for those of you wishing to make a one-time gift to our Snappy cause, we now have a Buy Me a Coffee account at buymeacoffee.com forward slash snap sessions. You can contribute as much as you are able to whenever you can. All our Snap supporters will receive credit on our website, thesnapsessions.com. For those who contribute at the upper levels, there are special rewards, such as credit on the podcast, early access to the episodes, unedited transcripts of the interviews, access to special music, and more surprises. Links to all support levels are on our website at thesnapsessions.com. And please know that we appreciate any support you can give. And we appreciate you listening to our Snaptastic offerings. We are grateful to you as listeners and hope you will help us keep making Snap Sessions a part of your auditory input. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes techmeister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, English comedian and painter Otis Cannelloni. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hooksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. SCOTUS versus Mother Earth, also known as West Virginia versus the EPA. You can testify, but you just can't win, because I'm here to tell you you guilty as sin. Here comes the judge. 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 
Once one of the most polluted rivers in the U.S., the Cuyahoga River in Ohio, caught fire 13 times in one century due to the lack of sewer and waste disposal regulation. A 1969 fire over five stories high inspired national attention, the passage of the Clean Water Act, and the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. The EPA consolidated federal research, monitoring, and enforcement in one agency to protect human health and the air, water, and land. The EPA is authorized to set national air quality, auto emission, and anti-pollution standards. Using the best available scientific information, the EPA reduces environmental risks and protects the public and the environment. To make this mission a reality, the EPA develops and enforces environmental regulations, gives grants to environmental programs, nonprofits, and educational institutions, identifies and tries to solve environmental problems, works with businesses, nonprofits, and state and local governments through dozens of partnerships, helps the public understand environmental issues. Over the past 40 years, some of the EPA's accomplishments include regulating auto emissions, banning the use of DDT, cleaning up toxic waste, protecting the ozone layer, increasing recycling, revitalizing inner-city brownfields. Protecting the environment from pollution is critical for the survival of our species and our planet. Oh, shit. There goes the planet. That is a promotional video for the EPA, or Environmental Protection Agency. Founded in 1970 and one of the great acts of Congress and signed into law by President Richard Nixon, Well, I'm not a crook. The EPA was a relatively revolutionary concept at the time and would serve as a model for environmental regulation around the world. Yet it has always been under siege and sometimes literally occupied under Trump, most famously by Scott Pruitt, who built a soundproof chamber to do his deals with the fossil fuel industry and politicians on the right in secrecy. Well, shouldn't we activate the cone of silence? Since 2015, the EPA has been facing an on-again, off-again lawsuit by the coal-producing state of West Virginia, with lots of help from the fossil fuel industry, in the case West Virginia versus EPA. According to the Cornell University School of Law, the case asked the Supreme Court to consider the statutory limitations imposed on the Environmental Protection Agency by the Clean Air Act when it attempts to regulate emissions emanating from stationary sources. Petitioner West Virginia argues that the court should not allow the EPA to issue significant rules that can reshape the country's electricity grids and thus expand the agency's power to an unprecedented level. Respondent, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, responds that the court should not read into the text an artificial restriction because any qualification will be directed at the states, not the federal agency. The court's decision in this case has heavy implications for the scope of federal administrative power, climate change policy, and statutory interpretation. In any case, this is all hyper-legalese to me. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. And it's no doubt a complete coincidence that Senator Coal Baby Joe Manchin in no way, shape, or form is this reality hails from West Virginia. That Manchin lines his pockets with coal money presumably has no relevance. 
But this case is different in that the Supreme Court is demanding it to be heard, although the regulations being disputed have been dropped by the EPA and are no longer even in consideration. What? The website Evergreen Action offers further background. In 2015, the EPA produced a rule to reduce carbon pollution called the Clean Power Plan. A few years earlier, the Supreme Court had affirmed that this type of regulation was in line with the Clean Air Act. Fossil fuel corporations tried to have their allies in Congress overturn the rule, but came up short. Then Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. Donald Trump repealed the Clean Power Plan within months. My administration is putting an end to the war on coal. And something else happened. The nomination of Neil M. Gorsuch. M. Kavanaugh. Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed. The Federalist Society finally secured a historic majority on the Supreme Court. This court is led by Chief Justice John Roberts, a Republican appointee who talks a lot about the legitimacy of his court. Roberts has said that the court's role is just to interpret the law, to call balls and strikes, and that party or ideology shouldn't play a role in decisions. But that's not how the Federalist Society thinks. And the fossil fuel interests saw an opportunity. Uh, the Supreme Court is tackling a legal battle that could impact the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. The fossil fuel companies decided to challenge the now defunct clean power plant in court in the hopes of preventing the EPA from regulating carbon pollution altogether. They failed to get what they wanted through Congress, so now they're asking the Supreme Court to do it for them by overturning 50 years of precedent. A ruling like that would be a huge roadblock in our ability to combat climate change, and it would go against the will of the majority of voters. But because of their new, undemocratic Supreme Court majority, they can work around both voters and Congress. Right-wing groups aligned with the Federalist Society have been flooding the Supreme Court with briefs, asking them to use this case to go all the way and rule on non-delegation. Simply put, that ruling would be a politicization of the court. It would deliver a pair of victories that right-wing groups have been chasing for decades. And this comes as more Americans than ever before question the Supreme Court's legitimacy. So why is the Supreme Court even considering taking this case? It seems like it should be a moot argument. According to Vox.com, West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency is a case about an environmental regulation that no longer exists, that never took effect, and that would not have accomplished very much if it had taken effect. If the plaintiffs prevail in their case, they will be in the exact same position they are in right now. It is a case about nothing. Yet West Virginia could also be the most consequential environmental case to reach the Supreme Court in a very long time. The plaintiffs in this case, and in three other consolidated cases, seek an opinion from the Supreme Court that would do considerable violence to the Environmental Protection Agency's power to protect the environment. And if the court indulges them, the fallout from this decision could wreak havoc throughout the federal government. So, the right-wing Supreme Court, gaining a conservative majority by Mitch McConnell and Yertle the Turtle, the king of the house, blocking Barack Obama's legitimate nomination of Merrick Garland back in 2016, as well as the untimely death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg literally weeks before the 2020 election, is now attempting to hear a case that will allow them to throttle the EPA 
and blocks significant climate change regulation for the foreseeable future. As I write in late March 2022, we have to wonder whether Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, having emerged as a seeming accomplice to the January 6th coup attempt, may result in a future opening in the court. Let us remember the court voted 8-1 to one against Trump's attempt to seal off his records back in January with Thomas as sole objector to having Mark Meadows' phone records inspected. Nothing to see here, please! Of course, we have recently learned Meadows' phone was full of texts from Thomas's wife cheering on Trump's actions on January 6th. An upset in the court at this moment in history might allow cooler heads to come to grips with our warming world. In late February 2022, on the same day, a United Nations report found that the impacts of climate change will be even worse than we previously thought. You're screwed. Yeah, you're totally screwed. The Supreme Court was hearing arguments that could significantly tie the hands of the Biden administration to do anything about it. The court took up this case even though the rules in question are entirely hypothetical. Nothing has even been written or proposed yet. The EPA argued that the court should dismiss the case and the petitioners should challenge the Biden administration's rules after they are written. Taking up this case would seem to indicate an extraordinarily activist and downright pushy Supreme Court. Back off right now. And one that will have consequences for the health of American citizens and our planet. Let's listen to law professor Pat Parento explain the situation on NPR's Living on Earth. The big kahuna case on the calendar of the Supreme Court this year, the West Virginia versus EPA case involving regulation of greenhouse gases from power plants, for example, there is no rule on the books right now regulating these emissions. So the Supreme Court has taken review of an abstract question of what is EPA's authority to regulate these plants before the Biden administration has even adopted a rule. It's the very definition of an activist court. So West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency has been called by some as the biggest climate change case in a decade. What makes it such a big deal? Well, it certainly is since Massachusetts versus EPA. This decision could, you know, not only limit EPA's authority under the Clean Air Act, but one of the doctrines is something called the major question doctrine. It's a rule that the court and the conservative members would view as kind of a new assertion of authority that an agency hasn't previously used. So the Clean Power Plan never took effect. The Trump rule came on, they repealed the Obama plan, they replaced it with something called the Affordable Clean Energy Plan, which wouldn't have done very much at all to reduce emissions. The estimate was maybe it would reduce it by 1% and it would rely strictly on efficiency measures. What is this major questions doctrine? It holds that courts should not defer to agency statutory interpretations that concern questions of, quote, vast economic or political significance. So, the court's right-wing majority could decide that the dying coal industry <coughs> has vastly more economic significance than the future health of the planet. And that is exactly what is happening here. 
As the Huffington Post notes, Over the past decade, the court's conservatives have developed the major questions doctrine into a tool to limit the federal administrative state, even though it lacks grounding in the actual history of Congress and its relationship with rule-writing agencies. If it is deployed here to strike down a rule that hasn't even been written yet, it would represent an escalation of the conservative court's hostility to executive branch regulation and threaten to upend the judicial process of regulatory review. In addition, as a general rule, a plaintiff who wishes to challenge a federal policy must show that they were injured in some way by that policy. Ouch! Or federal courts are not allowed to hear their case. This limit is supposed to bind all levels of the federal judiciary, including the Supreme Court. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not even a real blonde. But it strikes me that we need to look at the big picture here. Basically, we've got the dying West Virginia coal industry suing to ignore the future health of the planet. Let's hear more of law professor Pat Parento's perspective. The problem is when the court applies the major question doctrine, guess what? The result is almost every single time, in fact, all the cases that I'm aware of, is the agency regulation is struck down. It's a deregulatory doctrine. It's used when the court believes the agency has exceeded its authority and is going to strike down the rule and require that Congress explicitly authorize the specific action that the agencies want to take. And that's just a recipe for disaster, frankly, for environmental law. A major victory for fossil fuels and a sooty backward (laughs) thinking majority of the Supreme Court. Its warped and one-sided ideology is indeed a recipe for environmental disaster. West Virginia seems perpetually locked in a nostalgic, smoke-filled past when they were a major coal state. Those were the days! Contrary to right-wing mythology and fossil fuel propaganda, coal's decline isn't a recent phenomenon driven by burdensome environmental regulations. Actually, the collapse of coal mainly happened during the Reagan years. There you go again. West Virginia coal employment was more than 60,000 jobs in 1980, but fell by more than half by 1989. (coughs) Much of the decline was caused by automation. Even more jobs were lost after 1990 as coal companies turned to labor-saving and environmental-destroying techniques such as mountaintop removal. At this point, there are about 12,000 coal miners in West Virginia. As a report from the West Virginia Center on Budget and Policy put it, if there ever was a war on coal, or more specifically on coal miners, it took place in the 1980s and the miners lost. Meanwhile, today, solar energy has become cheaper than coal. Why don't we let the free market rule? How does it feel to be a (laughs) smartass? Good. But with an activist right-wing Supreme Court that cares little about the planet's future, we are looking at a possible legal disaster on the scale of the Supreme Court's 1857 Dred Scott decision. There, the court held that the U.S. Constitution was not meant to include American citizenship for people of African descent, regardless of whether they were enslaved or free, 
And so the rights and privileges that the Constitution confers upon American citizens could not apply to them. That Supreme Court decision has been widely denounced, both for how overtly racist the decision was and for its crucial role in igniting the Civil War four years later. Legal scholar Bernard Schwartz said that it, quote, stands first in any list of the worst Supreme Court decisions. And former Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes called it the court's, quote, greatest self-inflicted wound. By taking on the unnecessary and frankly ridiculous West Virginia versus EPA, the present Supreme Court would be pushing us mindlessly towards planetary disaster. Or perhaps we are contemplating an even worse scenario, a religiously exuberant court minority dead set on allowing end times to consume the earth and humanity. Rapture ho! So why did West Virginia sue on this rule that doesn't actually exist? And why did the high court take it up? I have to say, Steve, that, you know, West Virginia has led the charge from day one against EPA's authority. I mean, West Virginia was even arguing EPA had no authority whatsoever to regulate emissions from coal-fired power plants. And obviously, West Virginia is a major coal state. You, You get that. But it's frankly more ideological than that. All of the challengers to the Clean Power Plan and that have have appealed to the Supreme Court, they all resent EPA giving them directions on how to transition the energy source. They're, They're not taking any actions on their own. They could be doing that, but they're not. But they're also not supporting what EPA is trying to do. So there's no other way to describe this than that it is a political fight And it's about states versus EPA and who's in charge and so forth. And and it's not rational. Simply put, West Virginia versus the EPA is not rational. It's not based on any environmental science. And the plaintiffs challenging the non-existent clean power plan rely on arguments that, if taken seriously by the Supreme Court, could permanently strip federal agencies like the EPA of much of their authority to regulate. It's opposed nearly unanimously by climate activists and environmental scientists, and it is extraordinarily dangerous for the world. But it's supported by the fossil fuel industry, by Republican states who fight environmental regulations tooth and nail, and by the American Petroleum Institute a group that has never met a planet that wasn't worth exploiting at all costs. Surprise, motherfucker! These next years could see a barrage of toxic actions for our planet at the highest levels of American jurisprudence. Bend over, Mother Earth. Here comes SCOTUS! Well, I've been working in a coal mine, going down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to slip down. Working in a coal mine, going down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to slip down. Five o'clock in the morning, I'm up here for the sun. When my work day is over, too tired for having fun. I've been working in a coal mine, going down, down. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you.
I've got one of those uh, cordless telephones somewhere. <laughs> See, the trouble with me, uh, uh, apart from the dress sense, of course, uh, I've got a very bad memory, terrible memory. I think I mentioned it earlier. Not as bad as the old goldfish, of course. Now, the goldfish, as we all know, got a three-second memory, right? Three-second memory. Imagine that. Now imagine it again. <laughs> but it's true, because I've watched mine. They come round to the front of the tank, have a shit. One of those big, long red ones that trail behind them for a while. It's very nice when you got company. They give it a little flick, drop it off, swim round the back, through the weeds, pass the diver, come back to the front, see the shit, think it's a worm, and then eat it. <laughs> now, I've got a bad memory, but I think I'd only do that once. All right, I am here with Otis Cannelloni, my old friend. Uh, he's been called by Time Out the master of mirth and minimalist magic. And I can vouch for the fact that he's been a great comic over the years and a good friend. We've had a lot of laughs. I've known uh, Otis since 1985, when I believe I first saw him uh, in an act with uh, fellow comic John Hagley. I think the Brown Paper Bag Brothers way back when. That's it. Yeah, that was it. So we welcome you to Snap Sessions, Otis. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be asked, and it's great to see you too, looking so uh, young and fit and virile. <laughs> yeah, well, you can tell he's a man of many compliments, and, and uh, he's got his <laughs> fingers crossed behind his back right now. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a lot of fun together. We worked together for many years, and um, I know that uh, you grew up, Otis, in uh, South London, I believe, in Crystal Palace, which is uh, the home, the, the famous home of the Great Exhibition of 1851. Tell us a little bit about your childhood growing up there in Crystal Palace. Uh, well, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I was born at a very young age and uh, sort of progressed uh, sort of on a day-by-day -day basis, really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we, were, we were quite poor, you know. Mum used to take him washing to the neighbour's quarter. <laughs> and uh, as you know, Doug, I, up until the age of six, I was uh, an identical twin until the uh, social security realized it was a double buggy with a mirror down the middle it was <laughs> it was hard times but uh, fun times yeah south london you know uh, the home like you say crystal palace fantastic football team and uh, the crystal palace was, was uh, it wasn't originally there uh, it was taken from the center of london and moved uh, to oh. there yeah be before it uh, burned down <laughs> from the yeah from the 51 exhibition yeah, but South London was fine, you know. It was a nice, fairly nice part of London. We we were in a council estate, right on the edge of a council estate. They had 10 houses, and we were one of the houses. We moved there when we were only a few months old. Yeah, it was, it was good fun. Went to secondary school and all that. Yeah, and then carried on from there. Your twin's still alive, isn't he? Your brother? Yeah, yeah. Paul, yeah, he lives in Wales. Oh, Paul lives in Wales. I met Paul, and, uh, you know, uh, way back when, when uh, we were working with you on the circuit, and I, there you are, he walks into the room, and I think, oh, I was gobsmacked to see you. He looks just yeah. like you. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> I know. That is, so, yeah, we are definitely identical twins. Uh, we don't have that twin telepathy, 
but I did know when he broke his nose because uh, I broke it. <laughs> did you sock him in the nose? <laughs> yeah, it was an accident. You know, I meant to get his eye, but <laughs> but uh, you you weren't the first nor the last to be uh, mistaken for him. In fact, this last weekend uh, when we were doing the exhibition, um, he came to that and. So many people came up to him and started talking to him before they realised it wasn't uh, me. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's the uh, advantages or disadvantages of being an identical twin. Yeah. Although is he's a bit he, heavier than me. I oh, is, he, is, is he now? Okay, yeah, I was just curious because you've always managed to uh, be remarkably trim and thick. For those of you, we have only an audio audience, but um, Otis yeah. has stayed remarkably young-looking. Um, we're almost contemporaries. I think I got him by about a year and a half or two. It's always been remarkable how young looking you are. I don't mean to be lathering you up like this, but it's. Well, I'll tell you what it is, Doug. It's because you've worked hard. And I've just shilly shallied along. <laughs> <laughs> doing very little. <laughs> having very little guidance or uh, <laughs> five minute, five hour plans, five year plans or whatever. And, uh, yeah, I, I try to stay in the moment. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And uh, done a good job, mostly, I I would say. Now, you were there in South London going to school and so forth. And then you decided to go on to a teacher college, I believe. Went up to Bretton Hall. And um, I think you did a drama course. Give us some background on your uh, your uh, education as to become a teacher. Um, well, uh, I was uh, always involved in doing plays at school. Any school play, you know, I often took the lead part. Uh, Shakespeare. Well, I played, <laughs> I played Bottom in a Midsummer Night's Dream. I was in Hamlet, but uh, I only had a small part in that because I was doing exams. Uh, but did, I did the Caretaker, Molière's The Miser. Um, so quite big parts, and uh, you know, I really liked uh, doing that. So, uh, and I liked the idea of teaching. So I went off to, uh, as you say, Bretton Hall in Yorkshire. Lovely, beautiful uh, college up there, Teachers Training College, and uh, did three years teachers training uh, under the tutelage of quite a famous person at the time, a chap called John Hodgson, who was well into uh, in- improvisation. Did lots of wrote lots of books on impro, hmm. um, which I know you've always been into. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I've just written a book on improvisation. Myself, uh, well, to be honest with you, I was making it up as I went along. <laughs> but uh, it's going to be a good read. <laughs> and then, uh, then I stayed on and did a, a final degree year via Leeds University and uh, then went into teaching at second, secondary level, so from 11 up to 18. Did you teach up in Yorkshire or did you come back to the London area? God, no. I came back as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> The weather up there is uh, is harsh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Yorkshire is absolutely beautiful. You've been up to Yorkshire. Oh, yeah, I love it. You love it very yeah, much. It is, it's absolutely gorgeous up there. And uh, But uh, no, I wanted, I wanted to come back uh, to London and stuff. So that's what I did. Taught so in you, a secondary school in London. So you taught for five years in a secondary school. Did you uh, have kids put on plays and, and that sort of thing? Did you follow along and... Yeah. Oh, training. Yeah. oh yeah some of the best times teaching was uh doing you know after school 
uh, plays and stuff where <laughs> the kids are there because they want to be there rather than having to having to be there. So there was far less discipline involved, you know. You know, we were all in it together and everyone was enjoying it and enthusiastic. That was that was great. Uh, far better than the situation that you found yourself in the classroom a lot, which was uh, which was something I, I didn't particularly care for. Yeah, you know, it's a southeast London school, you know, with 2,000 kids in. And you've got 30 kids every hour or every half hour, if you're unlucky, you know, swapping classes. It's just, it's a ridiculous system. It's a very difficult place, to, a way to teach, I think. And uh, I, I wasn't, I don't think I was ever a particularly good teacher in the classroom like that. Much better, you know, in the more relaxed, relaxed atmosphere of rehearsals and stuff like that or actual drama classes. I just was never organised enough. I think to be a, a good teacher, you have to be really well organised and know know exactly what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm just doing it off the cuff half the time, mm-hmm. just like the comedy. Yeah. Well, you know, I bet you were a fun guy to have for rehearsals and the like, and I bet you you teased people, which is, for me... The reason I got through 20 years of teaching was because I teased the kids and had a laugh. And I think, you know, that I strikes me that that's that must have been the kind of guy you were in the in the classroom or in the rehearsal space. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I still see or am in contact with uh, a number of the particularly the fifth and sixth formers that were, you know, that I worked with then because they were older that, you know, they were, I mean, they weren't that far behind me, eight years or something behind me, you know, in age. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm still in contact with a, a couple of them. Um, but like you say, in those situations, it's you, you can relax a bit more and uh, forget about all that teacher and pupil stuff. Not that I ever went over the line or anything, but... Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, it was the, it's the big thing was the discipline problem. You know, my uncle was a teacher, actually. And his advice to me was when I first started was you go in there, you find the biggest boy and you smack him one. <laughs> <laughs> He's old school. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> was he in the British Navy? I mean, he just sounds to me like, you know, a type of thing. Well, it was a private school, Doug. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's right. Caning was a possibility uh, back then, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. Caning Mm -hmm. was a possibility, Mm -hmm. definitely, yeah. 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 Mm. Now, of course, you weren't destined to stay there. Um, Your your comedy chicanery streak was going to come out soon, and and I believe while you were still teaching, you started to do tryout spots at the comedy store and other places. Tell us about this transition you made from the classroom to the comedy stage. I don't think it's a big step, really. But uh, when I was at uh, teaching, doing the five years at the Chalk Face, I was also writing sketches for television. Um, so I, I had a few. So I was going, pursuing that comedy sort of career. I got a few sketches on Not the Nine O'Clock News, which was a topical uh-huh. program at the time. Yeah. And the, the two Ronnies, which obviously runs and runs all over the world now on Dave and stuff. Yeah, and uh, the big surgeons of comedy started in 1979 in London with alternative comedy, an alternative to uh, blokes, mostly blokes, telling mother-in-law jokes, rather sexist and racist stuff right, right. You know, we, that we've all seen. And some very good comics, but you know, some of the material was a little bit questionable. And so this started in London, 
and I started in uh, 81, you know, I obviously saw this cu- happening and uh, went to a few clubs like the Comedy Store and uh, there were a couple of others that I went to and I thought, well, you know, I could, I could have a go at this. And it was, it was much more relaxed uh, at the beginning, much more alternative. You never knew what, what people were going to do and uh, you never knew what you were going to do yourself half the time. So I started going along there and doing a few minutes working. There was a, a Lexi sale, French and Saunders, uh, Rick Mail and Aid, Aid Edmondson. Um, th- these sort of people that have you know gone on to fame and fortune. I've tried to avoid all that. A lot of them became part of the Young Ones, which of course is a show that's not only popular in Britain but pretty much around the English speaking world. It was popular yeah. here in the states, kind of a punky yeah. comedy sitcom kind of thing. Yeah, and you knew and those people, and those were contemporaries of yours at the time. Yeah, they were probably slightly more advanced than I was on the circuit. You know, they were a little bit more established at the comedy store for definitely, where, definitely where they where they performed on a regular basis. And uh, I, I mean, what what used to happen is you used to go down there late on a Saturday night, and uh, it was upstairs. So you had to go up in the lift with this old guy who had to press the buttons. You couldn't press the buttons. He had to press the buttons, <laughs> and. Um, it was after the strippers show was finished. So you can imagine it all silver curtains and stuff like that. It was like that. And the audience that more or less started our comedy night were those who hadn't left after the strippers. So it would be city blokes in their suits having already had quite a few beers and seeing quite a bit of flesh. And then, uh, then we, we came on, you know, uh, and it was uh, it was fairly gladiatorial, at, you know, at times. The idea was that if you performed, you got three free drinks and you could take someone in for nothing, you know, somebody else. That's for a nothing. reasonable deal. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we thought was, well, let's do a double act. Then we can get four people in all together and get six free drinks. <laughs> um, so by the time we finished, there was a we would, it was a trio. and we were getting quite pissed yeah yeah (laughs) so that was with uh martin coyote all right and pat condell at the time all right oh so these uh guys went on to their own uh comedy careers uh uh uh, along with uh, otis in different directions and you've you've stayed friends pat they're still around right yeah 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 they're still around uh neither of them on the comedy scene anymore but they're still breathing. Later, uh, uh, Pat, of course, was made famous by John Hagley and Eddie Don't Like Furniture, which mm-hmm. was a great song. He His nickname was Eddie. And uh, he, if you went into his flat, there was no furniture to be found. And it was, yeah, it was very spartan. He had fern- uh, futons, and, and that was about it, really. Uh, yeah. And Eddie, Eddie Zibben was the one of the characters he performed under, which was basically a one-liner, you know, uh, comic. Yeah. Very funny man. Now, in the early days, I understand you started with some sort of what's called minimalist magic, which uh, I have always enjoyed very much. Um, some silly magic tricks and the like. Did you come on? Did you start with that? Is Was that part of the deal from the beginning? No, no. I was doing jokes at the beginning, just jokes. Uh, well, I was juggling and jokes, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just trying to yeah. fill out the act as much as possible. Oh, so juggling would, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll do a little bit of juggling you know, and then stop and then tell a couple of jokes and then carry on like that. 
Um, so that lasts for a while. I performed under the title uh, Arnold Farai because uh, I was quite well into reggae and oh. uh, relax relaxants. So uh, <laughs> that was that for a while. And then I did um, uh, a mime act under Oates Cannelloni, which was a full-bodied mime act. It wasn't a genteel mime act. It was uh, so I'd wear white shoes, black shirt, black trousers, white gloves, and a white tie. But I would do stuff like uh, a, a wrestling match, wrestling giant haystacks, who was a famous British uh, wrestler back in the 60s sort of thing. And uh, I would throw myself across the room, give myself Irish whips. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was ri- ridiculous. I mean, I was always get banging my elbows and knees. And then I did a Zorro sketch, uh, climbing up arbors and sword fighting and riding a horse and saving the uh, damsel in distress. Um, it, all in stupid, you know, ludicrous ways, as you'd expect. And uh, I did a skating routine. I used to come off stage absolutely soaking wet, oh. you know, with sweat. It would it would just be ridiculous. And of course, in the, in those days, there was hardly anywhere to change. You, I usually ended up going to the gents' toilet, you know, and and trying to towel myself dry and put on some half decent clothes so I didn't stink the place out. And I thought, uh, well, look, I, I, I can't carry on like this. I've got to do something. Presumably, you went through a lot of clothing. If you're wearing a costume where you have white trousers and a black shirt and so on, you've got to replace no, black trousers, black top, black shirt. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you've got to wash all this. Oh so yeah, yeah. Clothes. Oh yeah. It was, uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm quite good at domestics. Stuff, yeah, but, your uh, laundry bill must have been immense. I mean, I can imagine <laughs> way back then. So it all had to be washed every time. But I wanted to do something a little bit more sedate and wasn't so. Uh, well, dangerous in a way, but uh, so yeah, so that I, I just focused on the idea of doing magic because it was a lot slower, basically. Yeah, so I took I took a couple of tricks, made up my own, like you say, daft tricks, tricks that go wrong, very Tommy Cooperish, and uh, mixed that with stand up. Yeah, well, we should mention that, now. yeah, Tommy Cooper was a, a big influence on you, he's a famous British comic for uh, Yank audiences who don't know. And he did a lot of goofy magic tricks that kind of cocked him up and so forth. And yeah. you were in that vein, but you were also doing mime and uh, juggling. It's amazing how many things that you may have brought with you from your, um, you know, your teacher training, or at least that time. The the kind of stuff that you were doing was a variety of theatrical things that you sort of were incorporating in your act in a silly way, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they all led led to uh, that sort of uh, performance. I, I used to teach juggling at one of the secondary schools, the second one I worked at, on a Friday lunchtime when most of the teachers went down the pub. Mm-hmm. I would go to the gymnasium, and uh, I'd have classes of juggling and teaching kids to juggle in there, uh, which, as you can imagine, was complete mayhem balls flying all over the place i had this teaching method it's you know i I say that i can teach someone or i could teach someone probably still can to juggle in an hour and then all it is is practice after that so what i would do i I would teach say five kids how to juggle get the basics of it and then they would practice that and then those five kids 
will each go off and teach three kids on their own. And it sort of grew from there, like a mushroom crowd cloud getting bigger and bigger. So I must I did that for something like two terms. And it was amazing. You, you'd look into the playground and the amount of kids that were juggling was absolutely brilliant. You know, yeah. really good, very heartwarming. Yeah, I like I, I just like the idea of that. And, you know, the fact that you incorporated into your act, you also incorporated some mime and yet you were making fun of it at the same time in um, yeah. your uniquely Otesian way. I have to mention now at this point, bring in the rabbit. Now, um, I know um, this may be uh, something for you. It's one of those things. I know he, the rabbit, has been on and off part of your act for many years. And I have always loved the rabbit. I know there is some competition between you. But um, we <laughs> we aim to have the rabbit, at least a, a part of the rabbit on to, at some point in the interview, just to show you bring on this little rabbit and you talk for a while and the rabbit and you share the stage. Tell us a little bit about the rabbit and your long term career with together. Well, I mean, I know you prefer the rabbit to me, really. And, uh, <laughs> I don't. I swear. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> well, you know, he's a personality. And the thing is uh he he is uh, quite threadbare. So it's glove puppet, basically. <laughs> he is quite threadbare, uh, but he does look very, very cute, doesn't he? He does. Uh, and, and I think that adds to the sort of the charm of it, you know. Yeah, he does impressions and uh, tells jokes uh, and, and stuff like that. Um, I mean, all of Richie, he's written, of course. You know, I mean, I've had a hand in it, but yeah. uh, <laughs> he... Uh, the thing is, the, the contrast between uh, this silly, childish rabbit, in a way, in some comedy clubs, <laughs> all these blokes with their beers and stuff, watching this little rabbit perform, it's, it's quite funny, really. But, yeah, he, he could melt the hearts uh, of uh, you know, um, even the most hardened criminal in the audience. Yeah. Now, let's say you have you have a, uh, an audience of, you know, brutal hecklers and the like, and which in Britain can be the case. I mean, there's a lot of tough show me what you got type audiences. And then this rabbit comes on with you and he starts squeaking and so on. And you're translating his jokes and it's kind of endearing. And if you watch some of your stuff on YouTube and you see this, you can hear the squeaks and then you translate the joke and you can hear the audience and some of the women, especially. Oh, and I, yeah. I, I love that about it because I think you can tame an audience. You and the rabbit together can tame an audience. Well, we all know uh, the ladies like a rabbit. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> That helps. I mean, if you get the wife on board or the girlfriend on board, yeah. uh, the boyfriend or husband's got to behave himself a little bit, hasn't he? Yeah, that so. that's true. That's true. And uh, <laughs> you know, I bring she'll that nudge up. him in the ribs and say, "Shut up! I'm listening to this." Right, right. <laughs> that does help. And it's a lot. You know, as we know, it's a lot easier to put blokes down from blokes' point of view, performer, than it is to put down women. So. Yeah, put downs. Yeah. Well, I think that you you uh, have always been good with an audience that way, and uh, you know, I think that uh, when Tracy and I were a double act, it was hard to deal with heckling because you didn't know who would who would respond and so forth. Yeah. But I th I think that also I think you taught me a lot about um, it's a point of view uh, how you respond is partly you have to sort of take it as a joke you have to take it as a laugh yeah. and and yeah. I, I think that I had more trouble with that but you were very good at it. 
And because you worked with a lot of other people, you mentioned Pat Condell, Eddie Zibin and Martin Coyote. You also had a wonderful and have had a wonderful working relationship with uh, John Hagley, who is a poet and a comedy songster. He's had a band called the Popticians. And you guys were in an act called the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. And you're both uh, Johns, that being your other name. We'll talk about that later. Um, but you would often say things, as I remember, the first time I saw you, after you, John. No, no, John. I have to go right ahead, John, etc. Yeah. And um, that in and of itself was a good laugh. I always enjoyed that. Um, tell us a little bit about your friendship and your comedy career with John Hagley. Well, I, I first met John down at the uh, comedy store. And uh, he didn't particularly care for me at the time because he thought I was a bit brash. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what that was was a mix of nerves and uh, lager. So, <laughs> but uh, we we got to know each other a lot better over the years, and we performed on um, a lot of uh, bills together as individuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, then John had this double act idea. Um, he'd actually done it quite a few years earlier with another friend of his, but it never really took off or. Yeah, they didn't really meld together, but uh, we did this act, uh, the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. Yeah, and, and we're both really called John, and uh, it, it's a mixture of different things that we did, but everything was centred around brown paper bags. So it was there was a lot of audience participation involved, which at the time, you know, was uh, quite fresh and stuff. And so we do poetry, comedy, escapology mime, the jokes, all, and a lot of audience participation all around these brown paper bags. And, uh, yeah, it was a really, really popular uh, act at the time. You know, we did Edinburgh a few times and we did quite well up there. The thing about it was it was a lot of double acts are the straight man and the funny man. Right. But in our one, we had more or less um, the same standing as, as the funny man and we'd both be at the butt of each other's jokes. It, you, you never quite knew which way it was going to go, you know. And we, uh, we were both quite inventive and stuff, particularly John. I've always been impressed by when I used to watch John as a solo act and then speak to him afterwards and we'd talk and stuff. He was always like, it always reminded me of someone whittling wood with his poetry and his jokes, you know. He'd be honing them down and working on them. He taught me a lot about how to approach your comedy in that sense. You know, never be too satisfied with what you've got. You know, always try to, um, you know, change a word here and there, move it around, uh, move on from that. And, uh, you know, it was a big influence on that. But we just loved working together. And it, it was, it was, a, it was a, really, a real fun act. I mean, the last Edinburgh we did, which was in 1988. <laughs> yeah. Big gasp from some people in the room. Yeah, yeah. Um, him and I would do our solo acts in the first half, 25 minutes each. And then in the second half, we say, you know, we've got a real treat for you. And, uh, of course, that would be us as the brown paper bag brothers. So a slight change of costume. We'd have brown paper ties, brown paper handkerchiefs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we used to have a huge brown paper bag that John would get into or it would be pulled over his head and he would take, attempt uh, some escapology whilst inside the brown paper bag. John would attempt to escape from his glasses inside this large brown paper bag, but just to verify that he was still wearing his glasses, we had to have to get an audience member up and 
get inside the brown paper bag just to verify that John was still in his glass and indeed take a Polaroid picture of John inside the brown paper bag wearing his glasses, which uh, we would then bring out and show to the audience. And uh, <laughs> I think the line was, I would say, OK, the, the picture's developing now, John. And he'd say, yeah, more than the act. <laughs> yeah, we should mention um, John Hagley was also in a band. I, I mentioned the Popticians, and he had a lot of uh, songs about glasses. He was very yeah. proud of wearing glasses, and in, some of his poems were about glasses. And, yeah, a lot um, of the early stuff. Yeah, and I I was always impressed. You guys had a wonderful rapport and uh, two very solid British comics having a good laugh and making fun of themselves and glasses and rabbits and a variety of other things. So, yeah, because so, the uh, rabbit would come out from a brown paper bag, of course. Right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's and, right. Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah. John would have songs and poems about brown paper bags. You know, he's in love with a brown paper bag. You know, it's a bit screwed up, but aren't we all? <laughs> yeah well i could say one of your many uh comedy partnerships um uh was with Hagley, and uh is he is he doing just as an aside is he doing okay these days john yeah he's very good john um i, I meet him on a fairly regular basis he came up to the exhibition the other day uh he's on solid ground um he doesn't really work on the cabaret circuit now he's you know he's got his own area field of expertise he does a lot of poetry festivals he does a lot of work in schools uh a lot of work with um special needs people via poetry you know he's a real he's a real worker workaholic really he's a good lad mm -hmm. i want to mention too uh john hagley for those who are interested on snap sessions for a number of years uh, wrote regular poems in the guardian and I yeah. know there's a lot of American readers of The Guardian. I have a Guardian subscription, for example. And uh, if you if you want to look up John Hagley's poems or see some of his songs, uh, you can find them on YouTube and the like. Yeah. Um, he's he's yeah, a really yeah, really wonderful artist that uh, Otis has worked with over the years. So I, I must say, the, 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 the Guardian newspaper, it's not what it used to be because, uh, uh, you know, it used to be a tree. Right. <laughs> get out of here come on Doug. come You're on, on. see he now this is a classic thing you guys don't know he pulls me one way and he tricks me back he's always been like this he's very good at this so <laughs> now you know you had many years as a in, in comedy you've played all these great clubs and been a regular at various uh nightclubs in and around london played all over the british isles etc and you played the continent on occasion now, here we uh, stumble into the time of COVID. You're still making a living as a comic. And um, how did you adapt to uh, the first uh, early days of COVID? And how has your career gone since then? And I also appeared in uh, Saudi Arabia. I was one of the first of three comics ever to appear in Saudi Arabia. Then go ahead and tell us, but you got to tell us about that. Well, we were, we were doing um, <clears throat> Dubai, Doha, Abu Dhabi. They tried to make me go to uh, Riyadh. I said, no, no, no. Another little joke there for you. <laughs> I was going to say that. The Abu Dhabi, is that one of your magic words? I was going to ask. Yeah, Abu Dhabi do. 
<laughs> yeah, so the dad arranges for, for to, to go to uh, Riyadh as well. So, uh, I mean, that was a bit weird. It was in a big uh, uh, American school, really, but the um, security was a bit uh, tight. That's for sure. The, the rabbit only managed to get in by burrowing under the wire. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, when the lockdown came, of course, uh, you know, we couldn't, obviously couldn't go out. But comedy came to a complete and utter halt. Uh, little did we know it was going to be for that long. And uh, like a lot of people, uh, you know, I cleaned the house. <laughs> I did some DIY. And then I, I was, because I had the hobby of doing oil painting. I, I did. I started to do some oil paintings, and I think I, I did about three or four. I did a couple of myself actually, and then I, I, I did ones which sort of reflected uh, the times, you know, being shut away and stuff like that. And then, then I did one of Tommy Cooper. Just to remind the Yank audiences, Tommy Cooper is a, a great uh, British comic of uh, Otis's youth, and uh, mentioning him anywhere in, Br- in the British Isles and you'll get a laugh. He's a, he was a, a, a hugely important and influential comic. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It was a very funny, zany guy. He used to wear a fez and he was something like six foot six tall, but a gentle giant and uh, a lot of, did a lot of tomfoolery. He was actually a very good magician, but obviously, you know, he went for the laughs. Things would go wrong. And he'd do silly jokes. <laughs> and then, uh, so I did this painting of him and I put it up on the, the old Facebook because people were saying what they were doing. And I said, look, this is what I'm doing. And it, it got a lot of, uh, a lot of um, enthusiastic comment, comments. So I just thought, oh, well, okay. So I, I went on from there and did an, another one. And I would generally, once I... Do it, I would put it up, and and they were all getting nice nice comments and stuff. You know, I mean, I I only ever do did uh, painting as a hobby. It was just something that was. Uh, I actually did it to uh, encourage my son to use the oil paints he'd been given for his birthday when he was a lad, when he was about nine. So let me just interject momentarily here because um, I've we visited you, and um, actually I visited probably a couple of times. And I saw that you were doing paintings in your kitchen uh, in that room. It has lots of French windows. And um, I thought, you know, you're pretty good at this. And I mentioned one which I still lust after, which is the girl on the swing, which is a probably five or six year old girl on a swing, just happier than happier than a peach. And there you got her swinging back and forth. And I thought, isn't that a lovely little character study? And oh, are, are you got it there? Oh, there it is. Wow. This actually, I, I, I put her a little bit older than that. but uh, don't really Okay, matter. she is now. But She's more, yeah, maybe a young teen, actually. This is a print, Doug, I've made for my cousin. Oh. Because he, he really likes it. He does, and too. And he, he wanted huh? to, uh, yeah. So I've just, had, I've had this done today, actually. So, you know, I was going to say to you, if you want a print, rather than the actual, rather than the actual painting, which is, yeah, there's always the print that's available for less than half the price of the painting. Oh, I would love that. In fact, we're putting you on record now because you'll be so will be heard by at least hundreds of people. Um, <laughs> that uh, Doug Nunn would like to be in the queue to get a picture of the girl on the swing as a print. That would be lovely. Yeah. So yeah, it's called Carefree. 
Carefree, it's lovely. It's just a wonderful yeah. painting. So I uh, I am seeing these paintings in your kitchen. And a couple of years later, I see uh, you're doing more stuff. And this was before COVID. I think the last time I saw you yeah. there was 2016 or 17. Christine and I came to visit. Yeah. And um, I saw, I thought, boy, you're doing some great stuff. And so when COVID comes, you know, here you are shut off the stage because of, you know, crowds can't gather and the like. And you start painting, you get Tommy Cooper out and then you get uh, some others and some are British and some are American and some are international comics. And the uh, scenario that I recall, you've got a a vivid background color, maybe like a primary color, like a yellow or or red or green. You've got the difference. And then you've got uh, a portrait of the person. And um, you've like you said, you've been putting them up on Facebook. So besides Tommy Cooper, tell us about some of the other ones. Well, like you say, they're, they're, they're all uh, like vintage comedians and comic actors. And, uh, you know, I, I've always, when I first started using the oils, I liked it because of the, the texture of the oils and also because, because of the vivid colours. And, and uh, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to create pictures that were really vivid and bright. So uh, that, that that's basic, and it, 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 I'm not very good at mixing the colours either. So if you keep to the original <laughs> colour, particularly in the background, because then if you've got to cover something up afterwards, if you've mixed the colour to try and recreate that colour, it's very difficult and difficult to get it right, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I uh, I would spend hours doing it. It became the focus of the day, really. But th- these these uh, comedians and stuff, I've got Phil Silvers. Bill Coe, uh, Richard Pryor, um, Buster Keaton. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to concentrate on the uh, ones that your audience would, would know more. A lot of these come from sitcoms uh, in Britain, you know, so they wouldn't necessarily know those ones so much. It became the focal point of the day, really. It, it gave the day um, some meaning, and uh, it was also a creative outlet for me, uh, you know, because we were stuck around... Once you've done all the DIY and you've cleaned the house four times, you know, and you've been for your 40-minute walk and you're thinking, you know, I've read that book, what else should I do? I would spend five hours a day just painting. And I, I moved into the lounge, actually, where I didn't have to keep putting things away, which was a bit more difficult in the kitchen. You know, you finish painting, you have to put everything away. But in the lounge, I was more or less up, left up to my own devices. So I would spend hours there listening to classical music, trying to get these paintings right, trying to get the essence of the person and also to make it bright and lively and just to, just to try and cheer everybody up, really, and myself. Uh, and, and that's come... You know, that's come through because you know, I've, I've got people's comments and stuff. And as you know, I've just done, just started this exhibition. Yeah. Tell us about the exhibition right now. In fact, it was last week when people listen to this, will, this show will likely come out at the beginning of May. But for those who, uh, who somehow catch the radio waves of this, this is um, uh, mid-February. Uh, yeah. Otis Cannelloni, whose real name is John Corn, now has an exhibition under the name John Corn at the Lauderdale House Upper Gallery in London. And um, presumably you've had to pick only a certain number of your uh, classic comedy series. I think these are called a, com- a Comedian's Comedians. A com- yeah, I thought a comedian. that was a good title. Yeah. I thought it's a great a, title. A great Comedian's title. Comedian, yeah. yeah. Well, th- that is the full collection of what I've got. It's 39 paintings. 
39. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's 30 smaller ones. You do inches, don't you? Yeah, still. still yes. Yeah. So it's 12 inches by 10 inches. That's what I was doing. And then I got offered the space at Lauderdale by the people that worked there who I've known for years because I've done performances up there, like we were saying. And I went around to look at the area and I was thinking, well, they've got this huge staircase. These little pictures are going to get lost here. So I thought I'd have to do a few big ones. So I scaled it up to 30 by 20 inches, which oh. are quite big, and particularly, well, for me anyway, and particularly in oils. You know, it takes a lot of oil paint, mate. <laughs> <laughs> There's nine um, in all big ones and 30 little ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, their walls up there, that they've just had it all done up and they've painted the walls yellow, bright yellow, which was the original colour apparently back in, I don't know, 1607 or whenever it was first built because this is a listed building. And uh, these these colours just zing off, off those walls. They do look fantastic up there. And uh, we had the opening night just a couple of nights ago and uh, I've got a, quite a big crowd of people up there. And uh, we had a few drinks and a few nibbles and everyone stood back and went, ooh, ah, <laughs> stuff like that. It was great. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, now, I'm. Uh, are some of the gathering restrictions receding a little bit in, in Britain right now so you could get yep. a bigger crowd in there than normal, than what we have been going through? We had windows open and masks were voluntary. They were going to take everybody's name as the, and, and contacts as they came in, but that's all. that was all relaxed. And it was unnecessary. So it was it was all right. There was only a couple of people that felt they couldn't really do it because of that. And obviously I wanted I, I did try and make sure that everybody had, had a, a lateral flow test before they came. You know, nobody came that was feeling ill or had positive. So uh, yeah, that, but it was it was actually a good opportunity for people to mix together again, because a lot of them knew each other. So that's good. You know, my comedy friends and stuff, they were you know pleased to have a night out, really. I have to mention for those people who are on Facebook, you can go to Otis Cannelloni, O-T-I-Z or Z, and C-A-N-N-E-L-L-O-N-I. And uh, you can yeah. go to his name. I got it right for once, right? Because I'm always talking yeah. that up. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, you can go to Otis Cannelloni on Facebook and you can uh, scroll through and you can see his painting as they've come up over time. I go there every time he puts one up and uh, uh, make slavish, uh, uh, groveling commentary about how much I like. Because I really do like this kind of oil painting realism that, that John is doing. It's really lovely stuff and celebrating comics. I mean, these people have made us laugh as, as, as John, as Otis has over the years. And there's some great stuff, both. And also you kind of learn a lot like, oh, there's an obscure British comic I would like to know more about. And you can look these yeah. people up on YouTube and learn more about them as well. So there's that. I had good fun, actually, uh, sort of researching them in a way, you know, because I'd have to try and find a good image to get and then you read about them. One of the funniest lines I came across was uh, Ken Dodd. You obviously know who Ken Dodd is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's with a Brit comic, st- Yeah. Brit- with his tickling stick. And he was done uh, for not paying his taxes at one point. And uh, he had to pay the inland revenue, quite a bit of back money. And his, his comment was, well, I didn't realise I had to pay the inland, inland revenue because I live on the coast. 
<laughs> oh, that's great. Well, now I'm just curious. Uh, now that you've done 39, and and I know there's more coming. Who are some people that you would like to do coming up? I just to give you a notion. He's done Phil Silvers. He's done Marty Feldman. He's done Tommy Cooper. You did Lucille Ball recently, as I as I recall. Yeah, I know that's so, quite a topical one, isn't it, Lucille yeah. Ball? Yeah, with yeah, this new right. movie they've got out, which is very good, by the way. But tell us some ones you'd still like to do. Goldie Horn. I did Goldie Horn as well. She's the only one in the collection that is actually not dead. All the others are dead. Wow. <laughs> Sadly, but there you go. Mm-hmm. What next? I don't know, Doug, what's next. Mm. I'm going to wait until the end of the uh, run at the uh, Lauderdale. So that it's running for, for four weeks. And then I shall take stock from there and see see what else is to go. I mean, in a sense, I haven't got, oh, well, in every sense, I haven't got as much time as I had during lockdown. I did get a telegram, an old-fashioned Doug Nunn got a telegram before from a member of the rabbit community um, wondering when you're going to do the rabbit. Um, I've actually mentioned to this to you on Facebook a couple of times. Uh, the rabbit yeah. would like his portrait to be done. I wondered, will that ever happen? Or perhaps you and the rabbit, you and the rabbit together. I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> it's straight. You're, you're good. A straight answer from a man who's rarely you, a straight you, man. You've, you've got your, you've got your seventieth birthday coming up, haven't you? Yes, so, I do. It's in well, May. There you go. It's you, in you May. Never, you never know your luck. There you go. But you never know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, before we close out, I wanted to mention. Um, uh, Otis John, uh, his his wife of many years is our, also my old friend Wendy Lee. Wendy is an author, and she's been writing for many years. She also was a comedian, and uh, Wendy is a very funny woman. And his son Nathan is Nathan still in fashion, in working in the fashion industry. Yeah, he's a fashion designer. Yeah, he does uh, prints and and whatnot, and uh, designs his own uh, menswear. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Yeah, some very swanky stuff. I'm, I'm still waiting for him to do one for me. Well, he's, he's done me a T-shirt and he's made his mum a dress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, he's been held back a bit by the old COVID over the last couple of years when he, sh- he should have been well, out there sparkling a bit more. If, if I could recommend a, a potential line of clothing for him, um, how about a, a line of boxer shorts with various of your comedic all-stars uh, on them as a design? I think it would go over really well. I know a guy in Mendocino, California, who would buy that for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about some rabbit boxer shorts? There you go. The rabbit would go over well, too. So, <laughs> uh, well, John, it has been a ton of fun talking with you. Otis, uh, uh, one of my favorite comics in the world. I'm hoping that we can include a few of your um, short highlight uh, from the Otis Cannelloni site so that we can have people have a chance to hear some of your comedy as well. And I also want to uh, yeah. turn people on to the Lauderdale House Upper Gallery in London and also to your Facebook page, Otis Cannelloni, uh, to see some of your paintings because they are wonderful. Great. Thank you. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. As many, as mo- uh, the more the merrier. Yeah. So great to see you, John. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Uh, long live Otis Cannelloni and um, all the best to Wendy and to Nathan. Thanks, Doug. It's been a pleasure and uh, great to see you too. I've had a lovely time. Uh, not tonight, but you've done your best. <laughs> <laughs> On that laughing note, I will pause the recording. And thanks to our artist of the show, 
English comedian and painter Otis Cannelloni. Our production team includes tech meister Marshall Brown, jack of all trades Ken Krause, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com and also the link in our show notes.